Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I'm your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, what does your dueling name translate to? Don't lead with your elbow, which is what my fencing coach yelled at me every single tournament and most, uh, most days in training. It was a bad habit, and I never grew out of it. I honestly have no good answer for this one. I'm sorry. <laughs> I feel like mine would be like lefty <laughs> or like whatever whatever Centauri translates to dumb himbo lefty. So tonight we are talking about two episodes, episodes 16 and 17 of season two in the shadow of Zahadoom and Knives. Our first episode is episode 16 in the Shadow of Zahadoom, written by J. Michael Straczynski and directed by David Eagle. Our episode begins with refugee ships coming into Babylon 5. The Narn are overflowing Medbay, and Officer Allen impresses on Garibaldi how overwhelmed they are. Garibaldi notes that Sheridan's orders are for any injured to get sent to sickbay, but he'll speak to the captain about loosening things up. On the Zocalo, Veer approaches that Ross Geller lookalike motherfucker with that punchable face. Morden had been expecting Malari, but Malari is presently on the homeworld. Morden invites, then insists, Veer sit with him. Morden explains that he is surprised that Veer does not like him. After all, Morden is doing such great things for the Centauri. When Morden asks his signature question, Veer channels, I think, all of the viewing audience and says that he wants to live long enough to see them cut off Morden's head and wave to it on a pike. Just like this. Creating the most gifable moment in the show to this day. Rather ticked at this, Morden gives Veer a data crystal to give to Londo. In Sheridan's office, the captain relents to Garibaldi and gives him some new instructions to try and help relieve Medbay, but he won't deny comfort to the dying. Garibaldi finds Sheridan is revisiting one of his mysteries, his wife's ship, the Icarus. Garibaldi uh, looks through the crew files and finds, oh, hey, Morden. Morden was on the ship? What the fuck? Garibaldi recognizes him, as he's been around the station a lot, and they check and they find that he that he's still on the station. They decide to bring him in for questioning. We go over to Talia's place next, where a Pierce Maccabee visits. He is a member of the Ministry of Peace. He invites Talia to some meetings designed to help promote internal peace on Earth. We then see Franklin asleep at his desk in bed lab. Ivanova wakes him up and notes that he uh, hasn't slept for 36 hours. Franklin insists that he took some stamps. It's all right. But Ivanova wants him to get rack time. She relieves him of duty and orders him to rest and eat. Ivanova and Franklin talk over a meal later, and Franklin admits that the casualties are taking a toll on him, and that he's feeling pretty strong out right now. Borden, in a uh, in a scene that is much more normal in a post-9-11 world, is flagged at security and detained. 
Sheridan shows Morden in an interrogation room and shows him a picture of his wife, Anna, and a news report of the Icarus's destruction. Morden claims that he doesn't remember how he survived and was found in an EVA suit unconscious. Sheridan believes he's lying, and when Morden tries to leave, John refuses to release him. Morden warns him that he's playing a dangerous game and even threatens his command. Pierce Maccabee addresses a conference room of Babylon 5 officers talking about a need to find internal peace before they can meet, make peace with other species. This new Ministry of Peace has instituted a new organization, the Night Watch, to help people think about peace and be watchful for those who work against it. Yes, this is fucking fashy as hell, but it's dressed up in motivational speaker talk, so it's going to be all right. Right, guys? Right? <laughs> yeah, that's a... uh, no. Back in the interrogation room, Sheridan keeps grilling Morden, but he can't remember anything. Garibaldi tries to get Sheridan to release Morton and keep him accountable. He agrees with Sheridan that Morton is sketchy, but they cannot charge him with anything. Sheridan threatens Garibaldi with insubordination and refuses to back down. Garibaldi refuses to go along with any of this and resigns, showing a backbone for possibly the first time in the season. Which is insane considering Garibaldi's respect for law and order and rules up to this point has been about as stiff as a piece of well-cooked spaghetti like <laughs> we also we also learn that apparently garibaldi's ppg is held onto his uniform with just like a lot of velcro yeah, yeah we're gonna i'm gonna talk about that but basically <laughs> oh my god so before we continue that is the most that that's that just that sound broke any like bite i had in that scene because it's so silly yeah really ruins the gravitas of the moment to uh in the middle of your dramatic moral uh, stand, you're vel- unvelcroing your gun from your hip. You just like you sound hear like that a you're toddler like, taking your shoes off. You're just like you do that, and you're just like, yeah, I'm just gonna leave now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. I had a speech, but I I lost it here. We should convince Zathras to put in a, a velcro sound effect here. So Veer visits Sheridan in his office and impresses upon him that Morden is a friend of the Centauri state and asks for his release. This piques Sheridan's interest, but Sheridan refuses to release him. Ivanova then talks to Sheridan and tries to get him to back down, otherwise she'll have to report it. Sheridan cannot back down, not with the possibility that Morden could have killed his wife, or even more drastic, that Anna might be alive. Sheridan tries to have Talia scan him, but she refuses as it is against Psycorp regulation. Sheridan has it then so that Morden is moved through a hall at the same time as Talia. Talia collapses in pain as Morden is consumed by shadows and surrounded by strange cloaked beings. Sheridan tries to apologize in Midlab and gets slapped for it. Honestly, good for Talia at this point. A side note, apparently they took the first take of that for the for the final, and that they only took they only did two takes of it because Talia slapped him so hard. Yeah, she slapped the shit out of it, which is super good. It's a very convincing slap. As Sheridan leaves Med Bay, Kosh and Len are there. They insist that Morden must be released. Keeping him prisoner will put everyone here at danger. Sheridan does not want to, not unless he gets answers. Delenn warns him about this knowledge, but Sheridan cannot say no. They reveal the darkest secret of their time to him in private. 
that there are races billions of years old, older than the Minbari. The first ones slowly faded, but not all of them. Some wait for when the shadows come again. The shadows were old when even the first ones were young. They warred in heaven 10,000 years ago, defeating the shadows, and the shadows were beaten back again a thousand years ago, with the Minbari assisting. All the first ones left a thousand years ago, with only one remaining, the Vorlons. Kosh cannot leave his encounter suit because he would be recognized by everyone. Delenn and Kosh reveal that the shadows have returned to Zahadum, the planet that Jakar has been warning them all about. <laughs> Kosh reveals that what happened to Anna's ship. It landed on Zahadum, where they found the shadows. Those who would not serve them were killed. Delenn tells Sheridan they must release Morden. They cannot let the shadows know they are preparing for their return. They must release him, or they will lose the element of surprise. Delenn reminds him that he told Jakar he had to choose between revenge and his people. Now Sheridan must make that decision. Sheridan, back in security, hears something through the new cell that Morden is in. He cycles through the camera in different wavelengths and finds creatures with him, just for a moment. It spooks Sheridan, and when Alan asks him what he saw, Sheridan replies, Just shadows. He orders Alan to cut Morden loose. Over a meal later, Sheridan apologizes to Garibaldi and promises that this will never happen again. Sheridan then visits Kosh and demands that in exchange for letting Morden go, he wants to learn how to beat the shadows because he's going to Zahadum. Kosh tells him that if he goes to Zahadum, he will die. Sheridan's response? That I die, but I will not go down easily and I will not go down alone. Bum, bum, bum. And that's the episode. This is a this is a beefy one. This is um, yeah. What yeah. starts off is I. This is an interesting point because it's it's really the first intersection of Sheridan with you know this plot that's been happening in the background. Really, yeah, yeah. Uh, like we've sort of like like the the whole Morden thing has been like it's been on the back burner and it's been happening for a season and like. Delenn and Kosh have been, like, they've been making some moves, but, like, the humans have not been interacting with us much at all. There's so much to say about Sheridan in this episode. I like the depiction of Sheridan as his grief is just barely under the surface. And they've been consistent about that throughout this season, that he's doing okay, but his grief is always right there. We'll see that again uh in the next episode and we'll see that we've seen that in the past like it's always right there on his mind but i don't like how far he pushes it i think i feel like it maybe goes a little too far i don't know like that always sat wrong with me how far he pushes it with garibaldi and with like but especially with talia that is the one that to me feels wrong i i don't buy that sheridan would abuse another person's i don't know that's the talia part always bothered me yeah the part of it that i think is like so going comparing to an episode to one of the episodes we talked about last time there all the other lies i think this is actually a, a neat contrast to it yeah where this actually i think is a is a very believable digression for sheridan yeah because i think that like the talia thing and it makes sense with how 
desperate Sheridan is in this situation. Because I think it's it's not just Morden might like Morden knows what happens to his wife. It's the possibility that's been opened up now that Anna might be alive. Yeah. And I think that's and in the scene in the hallway with Ivanova, that puts the stakes of like when Anna died, I lost everything except for this. And you get the feeling throughout this episode, or, or once that is set, that he is 100% here, like, I will swap those for anything. Or like, I'll, I will swap my job, my career, for another chance at her. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. The Talia scene hasn't really bothered me in the past, and I think it's because we, as the audience, have more information than Sheridan does. Mm-hmm. That we, as the audience, are able to predict based on what we've seen of Morton, that having the two of them pass in a hallway is going to be bad fucking news. Yeah. That's like Sheridan. I don't even know what he was expecting because we know that Talia is not that strong of a telepath and that she would only without actually scanning Morton shouldn't be able to pick up on anything other than just like very strong surface thoughts. So like if Morton was like, walking down the hallway thinking i'm lying i'm lying about everything i'm lying (laughs) about so much yeah that like she would be able to pick up on that i don't know what he even expects from that but but we as the audience know that this is a very bad idea but it's just like a wild wild kind of like maybe i'll get some shred of information from this but probably not and then it backfires (laughs) yeah i love the part so getting past sheridan's grief and his dealing with morden to the part where he finally gets inducted into the conspiracy of light i love the part where they're explaining it and he they're talking about the first ones and he like clues into like the fact that like kosh is the first one yeah and his reaction is pure early season two Sheridan where he's just like, Oh fuck. Sweet. Like he has this, this moment of pure, just like conspiracy nerd joy that discovering that the Vorlons are a first one. And Oh man, I'm getting enlightenment tutoring from a first one. Ah, Oh man. Yeah. It's very good. And it, it makes, it's a reminder of like the purity of the, of, his character that you that you like. Yeah. Yeah. I also really I think this is also like one of the first times that we get like a real good uh, a real concise summary of that whole first one thing. Yep. It's interesting because it's an exposition episode ultimately. Mm-hmm. But it works because it's exposition not just to us but to one of the main characters. Yeah. Um and it and it also makes sense for there to be exposition to that character at this specific moment. Also, we actually get a name for the shadows now. The shadows. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Not the most creative. I mean, but I think it's it one of those. Works, though. I, 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 have we talked about this before? I feel like we've talked yeah. about the, the idea that, like, if you name them the Rigelians or whatever, it just like they lose it. Like you, just, they, you've got to give them just a mononym. Otherwise, that it's just like I think. Otherwise, they just become like every other sci-fi bad guy. Yeah, they're not the they're not the uh, Zahadumians. Yeah, 
Although that's not bad. <laughs> kind of like that one. <laughs> no, the, the Zaha doomed. There you go. Uh, yeah, there's a lot going on there that I like. We get the introduction of the Night Watch as well, uh, who are a bunch of buttholes. I'm sure they won't be relevant in the future. No, not at all. Zach, from this point forward, starts to play a more prominent role in the show. I mean, not prominent. Yeah, it's, but not, like, it's not in my summary, but he joins the Night Watch. Yeah. Because it's 50 credits a week. That's, that's what we know the price of your soul is, Zach. Yeah. Buddy. And he's, he's like, I think, is, is he a himbo, Justin? I've put it in here that, like, I don't think. He's dumb. And he's big. Like, he's taller than, like, everybody else on the cast by... Yeah, I'm like... My whole thing is I don't think he's, like, sweet enough. Like, mm. and I, I jokingly... And I think we talked about this in the previous episode where I'm, like... I jokingly put him into himbo status just because of the Alex Summers accidental fascism corollary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Y'all... Late night or like late eighties, early nineties, X was a time and a half. Sometimes he just went through a portal, lost your memory, and just accidentally became part of a repressive uh, apartheid nation. It happens Whoops. to everybody. Just slip on a banana peel. Yeah, I think if he were a main character and not supporting cast, he'd be a himbo. But we don't ever get enough of his actual character yet. Yeah, yeah. I just like I, I don't think he basically like. He's a cop still at his heart. <laughs> he's still a cop. Yeah. Yeah. There is that. Yeah. And he's and he's he's taken money from a fascist, uh, uh, an organization that anybody with two brain cells to rub together would recognize as fascist. But see, the Zach doesn't have two brain cells. No, no. He he only has the one. Well, he has two brain cells, but one of them is dedicated at all times to wanting a sandwich, I think. So. The other one is just doing what Garibaldi tells him. Yeah. <laughs> um, You're not wrong. Ooh, hmm. uh, anyway, what else is there? Uh, you had a beef with the Coventry story in this episode. So, yes. Um, in in After Garibaldi leaves and after Delenn and Kosh tell Sheridan they have to let Morton go, uh, Sheridan offers a story from World War II that the Germans had a... This part is true. The The Germans had a cipher machine called Enigma. It was very hard to crack. And there, I, I recommend to everybody who is interested in the history of computers and intelligence to look into the Enigma machine at Bletchley Park. Um, the, or, like the origins of modern computing start there. Um, the Bletchley Circle is also a very good short television show. Yeah. Like it's Alan Turing is involved with it. Um, but basically the story goes is that they were able to crack the Enigma cipher and that they received information. The city of Coventry was going to be bombed on a specific date. Supposedly the choice that Winston Churchill had to make was evacuate the city of Coventry and save it. And by doing so alert the Nazis that they had broken the Enigma cipher or leave Coventry to its fate and keep the secret they had decoded Enigma uh, safe. This is completely ahistorical. At the time, from what historians of the 90s had agreed on, 
Like, there was basically one person who brought up this idea and didn't really back it up with a lot of evidence. There were books as early as 1971 that really didn't put any credence into this. And, like, by the 80s, you basically have historical consensus that that either they didn't know where there was going to be a raid or that they thought it was going to be London. So this is, it's it's a nice story that is one of those things that, like, Hollywood scriptwriters can put in for, like, a good, like, metaphor moment, but it's completely ahistorical. And there's, the, there's also the parallel conspiracy theory of um, FDR and Pearl Harbor. Yeah, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah. We we do not have time for this because this is not a military history podcast. And frankly, we would have a lot more angry people in the comments than uh, if we did. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things that it's like, I understand what you're trying to do, but... But use a better metaphor, buddy. Yeah, it's probably one of those things that like... Jam has heard a party once or like you or like you see it in another show and you're like, I'm going to use that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it was pretty like it was historically agreed upon, like among like the the historical community that this was sort of like a non thing. What would really reinforce this is that just like next year, all of like the decoded information from World War Two would be made public in the UK National Archive. Well, bear in mind. In the 90s, we didn't have Wikipedia. We did not. And that would have meant he'd have to put effort into figuring out if this was true (laughs) or not. And that doesn't feel like the kind of thing that he would bother looking up. This is one of those things that, like, yeah, where you can Google it now. Like, yeah, it's really, it's nothing. But it's like, yeah, it's probably something that he heard at, like, a party or saw in another script and just decided to, like, maybe maybe he read one of the books that, like, that were written earlier about the war and that had this idea in it. Yeah. Um, that were interested in lionizing Churchill and making that myth. And uh, I mean, it might have uh, been something that he was taught in school. Yeah. It, it's it's really, it could have been anywhere. And it's just like we pre-2000 didn't really care about that. Yeah. Yeah. There there wasn't like people like, Ooh, let's check that, let's check that. Honestly, I'm, yeah, it's, I honestly haven't checked Lurker's Guide to see if he wrote anything about this because that's, uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's just a, it's just one of those things. It's like as somebody who did like studied a lot of history, it's just like it's a thing that immediately jumped out to me. There were no vampires in Coventry, Justin. <laughs> so what were what were you researching Coventry for? I mean, I had I had my World War II phase. <laughs> like I, I I did like I did like a like I think it was like this would have been eighth grade i did like a 10 page like research paper on the d-day invasions okay because i was that fucking nerd so apparently not all history has to involve vampires to be interesting everything can eventually have vampires co-opted in that i can use in a role-playing game later fair enough i was that weird kid who liked uh planes boats and things moving on maps fair enough we might want to have justin take off their headphones for just a second okay Activate Gold Channel 1. Boy, howdy, are there... Dude, right? Is this, is this laying track for the future? The, the you know, if going you to go Zaha to, Doom? Yeah, if you go to Zaha Doom, you will die. They say that line so much that, like, by the, you, eventually you're rooting for him to go to Zaha Doom, so they'll stop <laughs> fucking saying the line. <laughs> yeah, um, he, 
Justin is getting very close to that episode and they're watching yeah. too. So I'm excited to see the, I'm excited for their reaction when he goes and the ship crashes down. It's going to be good. Yeah. 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 This episode is doing a ton of, a ton of work. It also is setting up the the thing with the telepaths and mm-hmm. um, the shadows. Yup. That there's a, you know, oil and water thing yep. there. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, it's setting up the back half. JMS often says that like all the the lightweight stuff happened in the first season and a half. And then the back half of season two forward, there was no more time, no more space for funsy episodes. It was all business. And th- that really bears out because this is the point at which things start to break towards heavy plot everywhere. Like Knives is really like the last lightweight episode we get for a while. Yeah, I think we can let Justin back. And one last thing that I wanted to talk about. So we have the the whole mini packs thing, which thanks for the 1984 reference. Um, that's a little bit on the nose. Is it on the nose or is it just a cheap reference? It's a cheap reference. Okay. <laughs> like It's like, because that's like, that's like, it's, it's like, it's, it's T-ball. Like, it's not even, like, an easy, like, fastball over the middle. It's T-ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I kind of want to talk about their whole, they have their theoretical basis, which is that, you know, in order to have peace on, you know, peace in space, we have to have peace on Earth first. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what they say. And that aligns really interestingly with uh, Ivanova's father's philosophy that he never came to Babylon 5 because he believed that humans had no business being in space, you know, until they could deal with their own problems back on Earth. And it's, it's a, it makes me wonder where he would have shaken out with all of this. Yeah. I think there is a difference between like, I think we should start to solve our own problems before we butt in on other people's problems. And before we go and conquer space, we should reaffirm our internal security and bring about law and order. I, I, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think those are two very different things because, like, the Ministry of Peace is, is entirely just. But, but Mini Packs is, is winning people over by claiming that it's the former in part. Fair. So I think. You know, in the alternate universe where Ivanova's father is still alive at this point, you know, it'd be interesting to see where where he shook out politically. Wasn't he also very politically, like very politically astute, though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I don't, I, I don't like, think he would have been uh, conned by the true. <laughs> political sophistication of the Ministry of Peace. I mean, they're. Their target audience is Zach Allen. Yeah. That's yeah. that's the average batter in their in their ranks. I don't think someone with a a, a political an academic background in politics like Ivanova's dad uh, is going to be conned by their horseshit. Yeah. True. I, True. I think we I think I remember in TKO that like from from what I remember is that like Ivanova's father politically was like a centrist or center right in his politics because like he mentions that he like like Ivanova mentions 
getting into neo-communism as a teenager, which is still one of my favorite, like, random throwaway lines. And, like, he yeah. thinks it's a complete bunch of crock. Um, yeah. But he's a, but you know, he's a Russian, so... Uh, and I, I think, like, if there's anybody I would expect to, like, be able to, like, sniff that out, it's a Russian Orthodox Jew. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, um, and, like, I think it's, like, once you see the armbands coming out... Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like it doesn't matter how how many TED talks your uh mini packs guy is given, like Fash is still Fash. If they've got a black armband. Yeah, they've got a black armband. It's just like ooh. It's uh it I, I just feel like it's interesting just to quickly point out as uh because the, the writing on those two phrases is so similar. The Night Watch is trying to appeal to that bunch of people by like, oh, but it's just common sense. Politically astute people like Ivana's father would like, would see, I, I think would be able to see past that and would probably want to be one of those people that gets reported on. Yeah. Oh, um, last, last thing. We actually get a good Franklin scene. For once, oh yeah, let's. Do, I, I want to talk about their 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 thing about religion. That is interesting to me. Okay, there's a scene in the mess hall with Franklin and Ivanova, and they talk about religion. Ivanova replies that she believes in God most days, uh, which is it's just a good line. Uh, yeah. But we learn that Franklin is a foundationist, uh, a religious or religious practice that started. Um, about a hundred years ago and simply that they believe that god is too big to be understood which is an interesting little bit of that it's an interesting little i'm trying to think of the best way to put this it's an interesting like sci-fi reaction to like aliens and stuff yeah and it's a and it's an interesting tidbit of world building too mm-hmm it's a decent Franklin scene for once in the show. I think also, I think the Franklin scenes in this episode, and unfortunately for him, you know, life's not going to get any easier from here on out. He's really suffering from burnout here. And uh, here in 2021, I think that, you know, he he's probably experiencing something similar to the you know fatigue and burnout that a lot of healthcare workers are experiencing with the pandemic too. Mm-hmm. They're just having endless, endless numbers of patients who you can't save. There's really only one new guest star we see in this episode, which is Pierce's actor. He's only going to appear in this one episode, Alex Hyde White, who honestly, the thing you probably know him best for is he is the body double for dr jones like the elder dr jones in the flashback that starts indiana jones and the lost crusade <laughs> oh he also played reed richards in the 1994 fantastic four movie Oof. wild I'm yeah sorry. <laughs> <laughs> i believe that's really the only thing you can about it, which is wolf uh Broadly, we're starting to get into some episodes that don't follow the fo- formula of like person comes to station Things happen. Yeah. Which yeah. is a nice change. Although we're about, we're going to, that's not what's going to happen here. <laughs> All right. Um, now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, let's get our knives out. Oh, sh- I hate you. So episode 17, season two, Knives, written by Larry DeTilio, directed by Stephen Posey. Here is a 
list of things that happen in the first four minutes, I counted, four minutes of this episode. Sheridan and Garibaldi, both specimens of peak physical performance, hit baseball so hard they literally vanish into the into the distance. I need to talk about that later. Yes, we're going to have some conversations yeah, we'll about the, the, the baseball shenanigans. It really, yeah. Anyway, uh, we learn there is a B5 triangle, which is the laziest setup for a B plot I've ever fucking heard. Uh, we learn that in addition to collecting conspiracy theories, Sheridan also loves haunted places, haunted houses, forbidden paths, Indian burial grounds. Nerd. That, that honestly is in character. Yes. Veer and Londo argue about Centauri Opera with a lot of silly made-up names, and then they sing Centauri Opera, which is the best, and I would like Zathras here slaps. to put in a clip of them singing Trentaro, which Please, is pretty is fucking slap. brilliant, soul-stirring piece of music ever written. Boom, boom, cora, tiano, tiano. That's very commendable, Londo, and you sing it quite well. But it cannot stand beside Centaro's Mi Grivataro. Mi la crossa vizima, ti vaye magri soleda, ti maya dara vizima. Aya vita, lestero, lestero vigri. As they are enjoying a, a moment of musical exaltation, a hooded fig- figure grabs Londo by the throat, uh, in interrupting the opera that I was genuinely enjoying to tell him that it is fitting he should die with a song on his lips, which makes no fucking sense. There's nothing about Londo that says music. It's just a clever line for them to cut away from uh, and go to a commercial break. Uh, but I guess blood of an entire civilization would have, you know, not rolled off the lips quite so gracefully. Um, but what are you going to do? The hooded figure it transpires, is one Urza, not the Dominarian Planeswalker, you magic nerd. God nerd! <laughs> uh, a fellow Centauri noble who refers to Londo as Pasoliati and is someone clearly Londo has a long and fond relationship with. He is a vocator, whatever the fuck that is, and the f- second finest swordsman of the Cuaro Prido next to Londo, at least according to Londo. The Cuaro Prido is the Swords Academy or Swords. It's house. a dueling club. Dueling club. That's thank you. The yeah. dueling club that they were both a part of in their youth, where they uh, cross swords. Mm-hmm. We'll get into that. We'll get into that. Yeah. Uh, they agree to get tanked after Urza takes care of some business. Uh, later that evening, Londo cracks open his booze safe to get the good stuff out in preparation for Urza's arrival, and he gives Veer a quick lesson in dueling societies and being a butthead. He apparently earned his name for fighting like a crazed... um, He uses a name, but basically I'm imagining Londo like a crazed monkey uh, as a duelist. Urza's name means silent beast, which is much cooler. Uh, He shows up and they proceed to get hammered. Eventually we cut to later in the evening, With all of the food wiped out and the two of them fairly buzzed uh, with giant goblets of... Brivari. 
and they are discussed. And we finally cut to the, the, the heart of the matter, which is why Urza is there. It turns out that Lord Retha's faction has begun doing a little bit of housekeeping among the, the noble houses, is introducing a motion into the Centaurum that will accuse Urza's house of treason. Londo is incredulous and assures him that he'll look into it. Urza is grateful and invites him to a banquet. Londo's first call, obviously, therefore, is to Rifa. Uh, apparently, this takes time. I guess it's, I guess Rifa has better things to do than take Londo's calls these days. But when he finally gets through, Rifa's basically like, yeah, he's fucked. What do you, what do you want from me? Uh, and anyone who tries to, back, to save him is also fucked and is incredibly hostile. Uh, going so far as to threaten Londo. Uh, but for once, Londo's having none of it. He reminds Rifa of how their little adventure got started and tells him basically that he's going to back Urza and demands that Lord Rifa try and do something about it, which Rifa reluctantly agrees to look into. Uh, this is maybe one of my favorite parts of this episode. Veer is so manifestly overjoyed at Londo doing the right thing for once. It's, oh, buddy. it's a precious scene. Londo brushes off his compliments and demands a drink and orders him to activate his agents on Homeworld. He wants to pay more attention to what's been going on there, which seems like a thing he should have been doing this whole time. feel like maybe if you're leading your Homeworld to the brink of war, you should maybe be paying attention to what's going on back there. That's just me. That night at Urza's fancy Bacchanal slash banquet, uh, things start out very nice, but go south very quickly. Uh, over the course of conversation, uh, it comes out that Rifa is one of Londo's allies, and he takes personal offense to that since Rifa is the one who put forward the motion to have his, his house declared traitor. And he offers a gift to Londo, which is the sword he used at a battle that they both fought in. Londo says, I can't take this. And Urza challenges him to a formal duel. Londo. To the death. To the death. Londo accepts the duel. And next we see him in his quarters talking to Veer, polishing a sword that is so fucking shiny it looks like it's made out of, it's literally like carved out of somebody's bathroom mirror. <laughs> talking about how it's all about honor. And when, once I might have not cared, but now that's all that care matters. And when you, when you're, you know, when life is insane, you got to ride the insanity, man. Sounding like a surfer high on PCP. <laughs> this whole section yep. is so fucking bananas. Like. You can tell they're like, you can tell that the writer kind of lost the thread here and he was trying to figure out how he was going to get Londo like just into the duel. And he's like, yeah, just fuck it. Just right through. I'm at this point, I'm every time I'm watching this episode, I'm just like, just get to the sword fight. Just get to the sword fight. Uh, and sure enough, he gets back to the banquet hall and they get to the dueling. Um, they do a little bit of verbal sparring and uh, Londo puts on a silly vest and we get to the dumbest sword fight I've ever seen on TV. Um, the vest actually... That's a, that's a stiff competition there. It's its a clear winner. I, I, feel like, I feel like, Jude, you should give a little bit of context here for, yeah, the, for the listeners uh, of, you know, that you know, you know your shit here. Yeah, from the age of about 12 to 20, 
Uh, I was a competitive fencer. I trained with TFC in San Jose and fenced with Olympians that were training at Stanford College in Palo Alto and at TFC. I was nationally competitive. Um, I didn't win anything because I, uh, I was good. I was good enough to make 32s and 16s sometimes, but I never placed or anything like that. But I was good. I was good enough to compete. And I was not like a casual fencer. Like I was training to compete at a national level. So I know what sword fighting, sport sword fighting looks like. And more importantly, that that teaches you to understand the mechanics of a sword fight. And I understand that stage fighting is different. I understand that. That having been said. This is not exactly Bob Anderson work here. No, hard agree. <laughs> so this the sword fight gets started and they're wearing something that looks actually kind of okay. It looks like they took uh, coaches jackets uh, for fencing. You, you have these heavy vests that coaches will wear when they're doing lessons so that idiot students can hit them all they want and it won't hurt quite as bad as it normally would. And then put a bunch of like costume jewelry medals all over it. Wackadoo in weird places. <laughs> Uh, and they're wearing, they bedazzled it. Yeah, they bedazzled it. And they're wearing these big, heavy gloves and that looks okay. And I, I, I feel obligated to point out that the old Centauri that is refereeing this fight has the most phallic fucking hair I've ever seen. It doesn't go out any Centauri hair. is supposed (laughs) to be like a fan, like, like, like a peacock's tail feathers on your head. It goes straight up there is no lateral it is super saiyan dick yeah it's a super saiyan dick coming straight off the top of his head (laughs) and it's rock solid you watch him move around that thing is is glued in place it's not moving anyway so he starts the sword fight and the first thing that both of these idiots do is they swing their arms out to the side and stick their heads forward. I feel like I shouldn't have to say you don't lead with the face in a sword fight. I feel like that shouldn't have to be like on a list under like pro tip from a sword fighter. Don't lead with the face. But apparently that's where I'm going to have to. I mean, it's a Wu-Tang song. It's a Wu-Tang song. Okay. It's protect your neck. (laughs) Okay, there you go. Protect your neck. <laughs> there we go. Wu-Tang got a song about it. Like the, the so, like a song that's title is what you should do in a sword fight. Yeah. Uh, but there they are. Stick it like, like a couple of angry chickens pecking at each other with their faces. A simple piece of advice when you watch a sword fight in a movie or TV. Stage fighting, they always, they're always going to exaggerate the movements because they're telling a story with the blades. They're not trying to actually fight. But that said, the tip of the sword, generally speaking, should point to the to the other person. Just as a general rule, because that's where you want it to go. Right? Watch the scene again. They never point the swords at each other. It's always faffing about somewhere over here until they swing. And then it like... It looks like they've both got spaghetti arms because they're just flapping about in the air. Finally, Malari gets dinked in the arm because apparently he just like has an aneurysm mid swing and just stands there and takes it. I can can go on, but this 
This fight gets somehow more embarrassing as time goes on because they're both old and slow and their oh sword fighting like, methodology is bad. And it just turns into they like... They get so oh, tired. It's so funny. They're so tired. It, it just turns into like a... It's not even a slap <laughs> fight. Take a, nap. a slap fight would be more dynamic than what this is. This is just <laughs> this is just two two old men like colliding with each other and gently booping each other with their so their arm their their gloved fists um, until finally Urza reverses his grip, which is not a thing you do because that's dumb, <laughs> and lifts the sword up over his head over his head, and then just waits. It's so funny. It's so dumb. Just waits. I love it. Now, in fairness, it becomes clear soon after Londo, like, figures out that there's no, that he's just standing there with a sword. He's like, oh, all right. Stabs him. Urza falls over, and he's like, what the fuck, man? And Urza's like, well... By the rules of the of the duel to the death, now that I'm dead, you have to take care of my family. And Lando's like, ah, I get it. You you sacrificed yourself for, to save your family, and of course. And he's like, well, of course I did. Like, you know, you couldn't have ever beaten me. Do you think normal people sword fight like that? No, he didn't actually say that, but he should have because that would have explained a lot. Anyway. I have a head cannon for this that we will get to eventually. I'm dying to hear it. <laughs> um, so he dies. We cut to Londo inexplicably wearing a sling for a, like, gra- a graze on his arm, like like a big old, like a soccer player who got walked past at a, at a, at a steady pace, sitting in his quarters explaining to Veer, how exactly it was that that all this went down. And he explains, like, according to the rules of the duel, now his family is, is House Malari. So Rifa's faction can't do anything to them. So he sacrificed himself so that I would protect them. Veer says to him, well, did you learn something? Like, do you understand <laughs> now? Like, what a dangerous path you're on? Like, and, and Londo's like, yes, I, I see that you know, he's made me consider like what a what a what a dark path I'm on. But oh well, shit, you know, my blood on my <laughs> hands. Can't do nothing about that. Nobody's ever heard of washing hands in the Centauri Empire. Might as well just keep walking around with my bloody hands and fucking shit up, leaving bloody handprints everywhere. <laughs> We're gonna use I mean, a it's shitty so metaphor. So in character for Lando, though. I mean, yes and no, like. Yes, absolutely it is, but also like <laughs> he recognizes that what he's doing is dumb and nihilistic and he's just like Meh. uh believe it or not that shit show we're only halfway done here. Uh <laughs> but the B plot goes fast because it's stupid. It's about the aforementioned uh B5 triangle. Uh, Sheridan, with the reckless disregard for caution and rules that only a wealthy white man has, goes down into the ramshackle back alley portion of B5's underbelly and is shocked to find that it's a shithole. There's poor people on my station. Uh, he <laughs> hears a noise and he discovers a dying, dead Markab uh, who grunts something and then grabs him. 
Uh, there's a weird special effect, and then he's dead. He calls Garibaldi, and we transition to MedLab, where Dr. Franklin is on his best doctor behavior, air quotes, and assures him that it's totally normal for a corpse to sit all the way up and grab someone. <laughs> Swamp gas, I assume. <laughs> um, he is... In addition to his dubious medical ethics, apparently he's expanding to questionable bedside manner and the kind of hard-hitting scientific investigation you usually find in a small-town doctor right before a supernatural monster starts killing, which is a thing he's seen happen like three times on this station. <laughs> so you'd think he'd have a slightly more open mind about this horseshit. But nope, he's like, eh, he's probably just tired. Go home, take a nap. Uh, Sheridan gets a... Totally normal, quasi-whiteout thing. But he's a big, strong white man, so he doesn't need to, like, tell anybody or do anything about it. Or mention it. He just goes home. Uh, I thought he did mention it. Not this time. Nope. Okay. Nope. He just goes home, uh, tries to take a nap, and is interrupted by the appearance of a gray lord! Uh, a flying weird bat thing that looks like a sprite from Doom. Uh appears in his room and he proceeds to shoot it uh, like a totally rational person would do uh, when a random animal appears in your house. You just bust out a gun and shoot it, of course, uh, which alerts security. I have questions about this, uh, which we can probably get into later, but it's my summer and I can do what I want. If security knows when a gun goes off, because like they can detect that the gun goes off here, how is it possible that they never know when anyone gets shot anywhere else in this fucking show? People rarely get shot, though. Maybe it's just the captain's quarters. It must be, because this show is replete with instances of people getting fucking blown away all the time and nobody notices. Down Below is basically a shooting gallery where nobody ever finds out. I thought people mostly got stabbed in Down Below. I mean, yes. All the time. I mean, it's it's also a stabbing gallery, but it's also a shooting gallery, too. People get shot up all the time down there. Um, Freaking Garibaldi it might be, got... It might be something where they have sensors in, say, like, the command staff and the maybe the ambassadorial wing. Fine, if you're going to justify the nonsense. That takes half the fun out of it. Um, anyway, yeah, so Garibaldi rolls in, like, two seconds later while he's still got his hand hand around the gun in half a rant. Props to the props to uh, the actor because he he does a real good like crazy eyes kind of voice here where he's explaining that it's like it's a gray lore from the system Schnark Black and uh, it chased me once and Garibaldi's just like okay crazy <laughs> pants put down the gun please very he does a real good like disbelieving small town sheriff. In this scene, it's 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 the it's the same voice and everything that he uses when he's dealing with Barkley in Long Dark. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, this this episode feels like a supernatural like a supernatural script like ten years before its time. Yeah, Sheridan tells Garibaldi, "I'm going to go to CNC. You you look into this." And Garibaldi says, "Sure, fine, whatever." Uh, oh, by the way, the Marcab killed himself. He bashed his own skull in down in down below. Just FYI, uh, Sheridan seems somewhat disturbed by this information, but still decides that the place for him is definitely 
CNC where the whole station gets run while he's going crazy. <laughs> cool. Uh, he heads up to CNC where, sure enough, he's there for all of eight seconds before he starts seeing bloop, 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 whiteouts. And then the Icarus sails past the screen and proceeds to explode. And he's like, scan for the debris. And people are like, beg pardon? <laughs> but props to him. He finally does the same thing that men in science fiction shows never do, which is he goes straight to MedLab and he tells Franklin, it's like, I'm hallucinating and I'm seeing things and it seems super real. And Franklin is like, Jesus Christ, Franklin. Uh, he's <laughs> he's just the worst. I fucking hate Franklin. Franklin's like, it's probably a weird Marcab disease we don't know about. Or maybe you just need to sleep more. It's probably stress. And I'm just like, you fucking idiot. How, like, how many times has some weird supernatural thing happened on this ship that you caused? That you are also, the approximate or direct cause of? You butthole. And you're going to... Also, it's hashtag weird Marcap disease. Yeah. Okay, this is super out of taste with next week's episode. Yeah, it really is. The only thing he does right is he puts this weird medical tracker thing on Sheridan to, like, check his vitals remotely. Gives him a fucking... An, an Apple Watch, yeah. basically. Why is that part of your link? Right? So Sheridan goes back to the baseball field and is slamming baseballs and for three hours fouling them off, all stressed out, when Garibaldi rolls in. <laughs> I actually love this scene. Garibaldi rolls in. Uh, and he's like, so I was doing some research for you and I found something interesting about that Marcab guy. When he was coming to the station, he went through sector 14 and Sheridan reasonably because he wasn't here last season. He's like, what the fuck do I care about sector 14? And Garibaldi is just like, oh, did I bury the lead on this one? Yeah, that's where Babylon four came through time. Sheridan's <laughs> like, The fuck you say? <laughs> Garibaldi's like, oh yeah, no big deal. Babylon 4 traveled through time and we got everybody off and then Earth Force covered it up. It's no big deal. Is this an S your standard Friday? Yeah. Completely nonchalant. Sheridan's just standing there like, oh? And Garibaldi is just, he delivers the whole thing completely stone-faced. Like, like this is, like he's ordering a fucking hot dog. Like, it's like... <laughs> completely and then he's like oh it's all on this data crystal and he's like i thought you copied it and he's like yeah i could you know of course i copied it like in case i ever want to write my memoirs <laughs> I, because he's a paranoid son of a bitch yeah so sheridan takes the data crystal and goes back to his quarters to review this insane piece of information he's just received <laughs> and he's looking at the pictures of babylon square like zipping through time as it, it turns white and compresses and he's like hey it's white when i hallucinate there's white white's not a common color that's probably connected god and sure enough he starts to have another hallucination and things turn white and he's like ah and his eyeballs turn into little like tiger eye marbles and he's like oh what do you want as if like this headache and weird hallucination is obviously a creature because that's not a jump to, that's not a an enormous conclusion leap right there, but he sticks the landing because sure enough, it then he has a vision 
a hallucination of his parents reaching out to him. And he's like, nailed it. I know what's up. I'm going to go to sector 14 because it wants me to take it there. Uh, and decides <laughs> who needs a link. I don't need a link because of course that's the moment Franklin wants to call. So he bolts out to get into a star fury and fuck out of there. And Franklin gets a hold of Garibaldi and it's like, the captain's gone fucking buck crazy. You got to catch this motherfucker. He's lost his damn mind. So Garibaldi gets in the star fury to catch him. And there he catches up to the captain just in time for them to get into sector 14. And he proceeds to barf light out of his face <laughs> and then pass out. Cause I guess he was right. I mean, he stuck the landing there. Like I said, uh, and then pass out Garibaldi hooks his star fury and they jet back to the station and we get a nice little scene where everybody's in their space 90s casual talking about his experience. And Sheridan is like having a moment. Like he's unloading some personal trauma here, sharing this, this intense thing that just happened to him. And then Franklin's like, do you think we could go find it? And he's like, no, motherfucker. What are you? <laughs> Shut the fuck up. And that's the end. Swear to God. Also for that scene, uh, that's one of the ones where I think Ivanova has her pirate chic going on. Yeah. And it really works for her. It does. Yeah. It really, she just, she lo just looks real rad with that flowy white shirt. Yeah. What a fucking episode. <laughs> yeah. It's a doozy. Thanks, Larry Detilio. Yeah, no, this is great. I like, I honestly love this episode because it's so fuck, fuck wild. It's, um, yeah, it's buck wild. I think is the best way. Let, let's let's take this piece by piece. Let's talk about batting practice. Okay, like that's the that's the least yes. crazy thing in this episode. Okay, okay. So the thing we have to remember with batting practice is that Babylon Five has rotational gravity and less Earth gravity. It's like what is it one two thirds Earth it's, gravity or something? Yeah, it's about it's about point six g. Okay, but see the point is that once. Once things are not on the ground of the station, they're weightless, essentially. All, all, the only thing that's propelling them is the like momentum that they had. They, they aren't pulled by gravity toward mm -hmm. the ground of the station. Interesting. That I think we will I think there's we're going to see some differences in the end of season two. Yeah, I was going to say, that makes no, that seem. No. No, that's actually uh, the the one with the with Sheridan and the yeah. the okay. So this actually, I was going to bring that up because there. So it takes him a really long time to fall, right? Yeah, that's because the only momentum that he has is oh from the blast. Hit the momentum from him jumping out of the transport tube, which is essentially a zero g environment. Interesting. Um, so he's got the momentum of him jumping out. So he's falling slowly, but he's moving towards something that's rotating at 60 miles an hour. So he's going to get clobbered by the. By so the it's not that he's it's not that it's going to be a impact. It's going to be a clobber per se. It's just he's going to be just like a skid mark. Got it. Noted. And so the baseballs, this is why the baseballs are so fucking weird. And yeah, because you hit this them and they're just going to sail up and then just be floating in a cloud around the middle. Basically, yeah, like they're they're going to keep going until they hit the ceiling or something. 
There must be like, a, there might be a big net up there or something like that. I like to imagine they're just, Babylon 5 is just full of balls. This, uh, there, I mean, it has to go with all the Centauri, right? Yeah. So basically, what I, how I imagine this works is that there's probably a collector-like system. Um, like, it could be, like, maybe there's even, like, a false top or something. Yeah. Um, but I imagine, like, he counts foul and fair balls and, like, home runs and stuff as, like, it just charts the project- it charts the trajectory of where it's going. Yeah. You know, this is this is one of the things that we always forget about B5 because you know the the CGI and budget were not there to have it be an expanse level thing in terms of playing with gravity effects. But one of the things you have to remember about B5 is that whenever you're on the station, it's not really any different from being on like series station or any of the other expanse things that have rotational gravity. Um, and so all of the weird shit you see with rotational gravity, where, say, Detective Miller pours something and it goes in a spiral pattern, that shit happens on B5, too. <laughs> it was just that we don't see it because 1995. Yeah. But B5 is, it's, it's interesting because humans are relatively low tech and a lot of the other species do have artigrav. Um, notably the Mimbari, yeah. and I think the Centauri do as well. But humans are still on rotational gravity. That's how all of their ships work. I mean, presumably, presumably they've got parts of their ships that are configured for thruster gravity as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. My 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 thing I want to take about this is that I is that um, Garibaldi is Garibaldi bats left. I don't know if we I don't know if we see him right with anything, but like um, he he bats left handed and. Comparing your swings, I personally, I think that Garibaldi's swing is a lot more aesthetically pleasing. Like he has like actual hip movement, which is how you generate torque and power with a baseball swing. Meanwhile, Sheridan's just got like this short shopping thing that like, that's not good. Buddy, buddy, you're going to like, that's how you whack at a ball. And that that is not pretty. You do not generate power that way. Does he, is he? Is he swinging that way in the first baseball scene yes, as well? Yes. Okay. I, I, I like this note was made during the first scene. <laughs> okay. It's not. Yeah, it's, it's not so, just the like. Okay. Well, it's after three hours. Of course, he looks like shit. Yeah. No. The, 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 this isn't like. Oh, he's frustrated and stuff. Is like no. Nah, just just Bruce Boxleder's swing is not as good as uh, Gary's. Is. Garibaldi's is just much more open. He steps into it. I, I'm. Yeah. Gar- Garibaldi Garibaldi might have played baseball on Mars. I don't know. Like, come on. Sher- Sheridan's from what? Iowa? He probably played football. It's just you probably can't. Like, nobody's going to play football with you in two-thirds gravity uh, <laughs> on a station where, like, with all your luck, you're going to get some drowsy who doesn't, who, who thinks that humans don't get CTE. <laughs> okay. Next thing here. Londo has a booze vault. I don't know why that surprises you. It's no, I, I'm not surprised. It's awesome. I just yeah. wanted to, like, like we get we get a shot from inside the booze vault as they're opening it up to like chill some bravari. I guess the only thing I'm surprised by is that there wasn't like anything else in there. Yeah, I mean, I like the idea that he has a booze vault. It does raise the question of what other kinds of vaults he has. Because there wasn't anything else in there, and there's no way that he doesn't have like a oh, vault one of them for has secrets. to have his purple files. The purple files. One of them has to have his porn. Um, <laughs> I we do get an, we actually do get an, uh, a reference to Born of the Purple 
in this episode, yeah. which is nice. Uh, Londo mentions his fling with Adira. Yeah. Do we want to talk about the, the dueling club? Yeah, let's talk about this because the there are some weird things I cross, want to talk about. Crossing like, swords. Yeah, so first of all, those swords do not look like what you would no, use for dueling. No, they're not. They're not. You would never. They look like the sort of sword swords. that you put on your wall to have yeah. a shiny well, sword. Okay. Well, they're, they're like, they're short swords. They're like. There's a lot of problems shit. here. First, yes, <laughs> that's some mall ninja shit. One. Two, <laughs> you would never duel with those, with swords like that. They're. They're short swords, as as you correctly point out. That's not what you would duel with, per se. Uh, and and three, they're yeah, no, just no. Uh, I mean, <laughs> everything so is bad shiny. They're so shiny, though. Yeah, he's like, yeah. this is a sword I carry to war, and you're like, mm-hmm. you probably wore it while you were at war. Yeah, I think the I think the only sword crossing those two guys did at the battle of whatever was uh, a very different kind of sword crossing that you want to talk about for this episode. Do we just want to agree that Centauri dueling clubs are just an excuse for rich men to fuck each other? I mean, so is is a Centauri dueling dueling club the same thing as like a San Francisco bathhouse? Is that what you're implying? I mean, pretty much like it's just, you get dressed in like fancy clothes, you go and drink some Bravari and then, uh, you cross. Yeah, you work blade. up a sweat, and then you uh, work up a sweat. You work up a sweat. Yeah, it, it's uh, like uh, there's just one dude who's just like Otto Van Vaughn beating this shit. Like <laughs> mm, we've had some Bravari. Who wants to have sex? Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I I really just think that it is just like Centauri dueling clubs are just a mess of tentacles. Um, wow. Okay. Well, with that visual, let's move on. <laughs> I agree. I don't know whose note this is that Centauri honor shit is better than Minbari honor shit, and I 100% agree. Yeah, that's yeah. my that's my note. Um, I think that's because Centauri honor shit is like sad white man honor shit, and <laughs> as opposed to like really bad Orientalism honor shit. Yeah, and I'm fu- and also it like. Centauri honor shit is like sad and pathetic as opposed to like it's Shakespeare. It's Shakespeare compared to like yeah. God help me, I cannot love the opera scene enough. I the opera stuff is so good. It's so, it's so good. good. It's the two of them nerding out over opera, and then they start to sing it together, and the music swells in the background as they sing it. I just whoever put that scene together. Bless their yeah, hearts. It's, it's so I good. would I would happily purchase and listen to an entire album of the t- two of them singing opera. It has the feeling, and it is very genuine for this reason, of two musical theater nerds who just like, oh yeah, but I like this more. And then like uh, somebody starts singing, and the other person sings along, and it's just like, God, you're a bunch of fucking nerds yeah. to any bystander who's just like who who realized that like. Theater geeks on a whole other level, but then there's musical theater trash. Yep, and that is a specific level of horrible nerddom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it has it has such good energy though, and it's it's really up there with Jakar singing to his roast beast. I mean, let's be careful. It's not that it's not that good, but it's very good. It's up there with it though. It's close. Interesting note that I want to raise. Uh, 
This episode was supposed to air prior to In the Shadow of Zaha Doom, but the that makes sense. The other, that episode's uh, CGI took forever to, to render, so it got bumped. But that actually makes a lot of sense because this episode would have served to have reminded the viewers about Anna's death on the Icarus. Yeah. So that in the shadow of Zaha Doom, it would have been fresh on your mind, so to speak, and been right there. And that's not going to be a problem for people who are watching this on HBO. Um, yeah, because this is our first episode recording it since the release of it, which the... For the most part, HBO is releasing stuff on production order now. So you'll get to see the order that JMS intended. There's which, some funky ordering choices. Yeah. So Bruce Boxlitner, when he is giving the Star Fury authorization code, I'm just checking here. Isn't Boxlitner Canadian? No, he isn't. He isn't? He isn't. He's said as Ameri- he, uh He is from uh, Illinois. Elgin, Illinois. So so both the writer of this episode and the actor are Americans. But when giving us a Star Fury authorization code, uh, Sheridan says, uh, like, Delta Delta 6Z, Niner. And I'm like, why? Uh, why? Are- so my best guess is the, the writer of this episode didn't actually know how, like, military letter whatever that, that whatever the official term for that is yeah and thought it was zed and not zeta or whatever it is yeah i'm just checking yeah out. it might be it might have been a flub on the nato phonetic alphabet yeah uh because it is del- because delta delta z in the nato phonetic alphabet is either zulu or zero yeah so I bet you he just didn't know it should yeah, have been Zulu and he said Z- and they he wrote in Z instead. Yeah, it's just it's a weird one because that's just that's a Canadianism yeah. or I mean a Britishism also, I guess. A, co- a Commonwealth countriesism. Yeah. We need to address the elephant in the room oh, yeah. on this one. Put your headphones off. Activate gold channel one. Which is the were you going to be something other than the light? Oh, thing? I was going to say something else, but we have, but um, you were going to point out the the face light thing, right? Yeah, which is just like when Lita barfs out Vorlon from her face in season three or late season yeah. two, season three. It's just like yeah. that. Um, and I don't know if that's because they're lazy and they just reused the effect that they had from season two <laughs> and used it in season three and it just became how they did it. Or if there was an if they intended it to be similar. But I mean, looking Good at question. it now, it was just like, man, that's the I mean, that's the same thing. That's that's the same thing. Yeah. Uh, I It might be it might be like the 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 dick monster. Yeah, it's a face dick monster. <laughs> All right. You're good. We were talking about face dicks. Okay. Uh, well, so the the actual elephant in the room that I was going to bring up is this episode's um, Hey, I Know That Face. Uh, Vocator Urza is played by Carmen Arganziano, who, if you watch Stargate SG-1, he is Jacob Carter slash Selmak. Space Dad! Oh, yeah. Okay. Not the worst dad. <laughs> It honestly breaks immersion for me on in this episode because I know him so much from SG One, and seeing him here, I'm like, "What's Space Dad doing here?" See, the, the thing that saves it is the hair and the accent. 
Like, mm. that is enough for me to separate it, because those are both wild. His accent's not nearly as good as Londo's, though. Nobody's is. Yeah, it, it's not as pronounced, but it's just like, it's enough to like, hey, I recognize that voice. Buddy, buddy, yep. Yeah. Yep. But not like, I cannot unsee Jacob Carter. He's dressed like a Centauri. Yeah. <laughs> Next time, uh, this is going to be a little bit of a warning, but we're also going to give it before the next episode. For our next episode, we are only going to be covering one episode. Uh, that is Confessions and Lamentations. Uh, that's episode 18 of season two. And uh, I'm going to, we're going to include a content warning before that episode, but I'm also going to give it here. This is, I think, by far maybe the darkest episode of Babylon 5. So far. If you're watching along with us, this has um the plot is about a very virulent plague be careful with yourself uh be good to yourself this i nearly skipped this episode um and we'll talk about it more next week but um if that is something that you are not in a good mindset to watch we'll uh meet you for the next one when we're going to be watching divided loyalties until next time the Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license.